Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here. And you guys are, we got a group downstairs. We got a group scattered all over our city. And you guys who get to be here this morning, it's really good to see your faces and to be present with you. Uh, we are studying uh, through a topical series. We're going to be there for a while. And the topic is the church. Last week, we studied uh, some characteristics of the local church. Today, we're going to ask this key question. What is the mission of the church? We are in a time in the church's history for us where we are in which God and His sovereign grace is causing us to take a look at how we do what we do and be missiologically aligned with God's purpose in our actual implementation of the church. But before we get to that, it is key that we understand what the church is. So we started with some characteristics of the church. We're going to ask if the church has a mission and what is it today. And we're going to begin to study next week through some metaphors of the local church that the Bible gives us. And then for nine weeks, yes, nine weeks, we're going to look at a mark, an, a, a, an indicator of what the church is from the New Testament. There are going to be nine of those, nine indicators of what a New Testament church is. Then we're going to work to define the church. We're actually going to put a definition to it and see how the Lord Jesus is building his church universally all around the world, one body of Christ, but locally manifest in communities and cities in covenant fellowship together. And then we're going to look at how the local works itself down into the fabric of its culture through the cell or through what we call a radical life group. We're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to spend a few weeks talking about the application to that and church multiplication, how we cooperate, who we cooperate with, and how that works itself out tactically, practically into cells. But again, today we want to look at the key question, what is the mission of the church? I have a sneaking suspicion that today McDonald's and her corporate headquarters is not asking questions about the production of hand sanitizer. Why do you think that is? Because McDonald's exists to put a hamburger in your hand. Not hand sanitizer. And so I can promise you somewhere in their development departments and all their organizational structure, there is not an office designed... To walk through how to produce hand sanitizer. As good as hand sanitizer is. And we need it. And we like it. And it's good for us. McDonald's not interested in that. Why? Because her mission is to stick in front of us hamburgers. Right? So hand sanitizer isn't on the list of organizational importance for them. Not to say hand sanitizer is unimportant because it is. Right? But McDonald's isn't concerned with that. We say, what in the world does that have to do with the mission of the church? Well, a little bit of everything. And here's why. Because when we come to the mission of the church, and if there is a mission for the church, then it makes us think about what we do. Does it not? And makes us think about lining ourselves up with that mission. Are you understanding and tracking with me here? So when we discover the mission of the church, it's a dangerous thing because our minds begin to go toward, well, gee, how are we doing that? It forces us to ask some uncomfortable questions. 
Those are good questions for us that the Lord Jesus and His good sovereign purpose has in front of us now. Why do we do what we do and are we doing it for the right reason? Very important question. What's the mission of the church? This morning, the method is going to be a little bit different, okay? We're going to start by observing the church's actions in the book of Acts. And then we're going to work our way backward into answering this question. Why did they do that? Why in the world did they do that? And then we're going to answer that question by seeing if God is clear about who he is and his stated purpose for all that he's doing. So that's going to be our method. We're going to start at the end and work our way backward to the reason. Okay. So the first question we're going to ask in answering the question, what is the mission of the church, is this. What did the church do? So you got your Bible. Go to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 4. And we're going to re- be really quick in working from that passage over to Acts 11, verse 19 to 26. And then we're going to be real quick about jumping into Acts 13, 1 to 3. One of the challenges for me in doing topical sermons is I want to treat every passage we got to look at like it's the whole sermon. And so it's going to be really hard not to hang out in these passages. But we got to go quick and trust that in your groups you guys are going to unpack these passages because you also have the Holy Spirit. You are a priest of the Lord and you have a Bible and God is going to use that to produce good fruits. We're going to introduce it, ask the key questions and move ourselves along into understanding God's mission. So what did the church do? Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now key in understanding what we're about to read is Stephen has been killed at the hands of Saul who will later become Paul, in persecuting the movement of the church. And we get to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, because there has now been a scattering. There is persecution that has broken out. And we read verse 4 of Acts 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip... When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Wow. The church is persecuted, and what happens? They were scattered. They, all of them, and guess what they did? They all went about hiding in safe places. Is that what it says? No, it said they went about preaching the word. What's the word? This good news of the kingdom and the salvation of Jesus Christ. So every disciple has now been mobilized through what has happened to go about preaching the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. Well, something substantial happens because these scattered disciples show up again in Acts chapter 11. All right? So Acts chapter 11, verse 19, you say, how do you know... That those who were scattered in Acts 8 are the ones who you're going to read about in Acts 11. Well, let's look at the passage and see. You ready? You think it's going to answer the question for us? I think so. Here you go. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, you see that? We asked the question. The text answered the question. They were scattered. They went about preaching the gospel. And we read here that those who were scattered and were preaching the gospel... In that act, in Acts 7 and 8, 
they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But, the, uh, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. That's key. We're going to mention that in just a moment. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is amazing. And this report comes to the church in Jerusalem. So they send Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, Antioch, as a result of the scattering in Jerusalem. Now go to Acts 13 and let's read about Antioch. Acts 13, verse 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What in the world do we see in these passages? Well, we see some things that are important. There was outward movement. I think it's safe for us to say this morning that this outward movement was a work of the Lord. One of the things you cannot escape in the book of Acts is the sovereign hand of the Holy Spirit moving the mission of Jesus forward. Stephen's stoning is not accidental. It is tragic, but it's not off God's radar. And God in His good sovereign grace who did the Genesis 50-20 for Joseph also did the Genesis 50-20 here that what others meant for evil, God meant it for good. And in that activity, God scattered His people who went about preaching the good news. And lo and behold... Some of them end up in foreign cities preaching the good news. So there is outward movement and everybody's preaching. One of the great challenges we have in the church in the West is to redefine words and terms biblically. We have this misconception that preaching is only the function of the person standing in this place. And the rest of our job is to come and hear them. That is not true. That is a lie. The truth is, the preaching of the gospel is every disciple's responsibility. And yes, preaching. And I know that word culturally carries connotations for us that maybe are uncomfortable, or maybe we feel we're not called to. Listen, every disciple is called to preach the gospel. Because Jesus told us to go do it among the nations. So everybody sitting here this morning, everybody live streaming at home, you have a call on your life to preach the gospel. So there's outward movement. Everybody's preaching the good news of the kingdom the rule and salvation of Jesus. They're pushing now into unreached places. And we read they start crossing cultures because they're not just speaking to Jews, they're now speaking to Hellenists, which is a fancy word that means Greeks, non-Jews. They have crossed cultures into people who don't look like them, who don't act like them, who have a different set of cultural values, and they're taking the gospel to them. We see there's a public witness that's clear and unambiguous. How do you know it's clear and unambiguous? Because they start calling them little Jesuses at Antioch. It's no longer the way, or it's no longer a sect of Judaism. They see that these people so act like the Jesus that they talk about, that they give them a nickname. 
And it's not the Christians who give themselves the name. It's the people outside who say, you act like the stuff you say. So we'll just call you Christian. Isn't that crazy? So their witness was so clear and unambiguous that outsiders gave them a nickname called Christian. And you know that name today because their message was so clear. There was no ambiguity in what they were saying. Nobody was confusing the gospel of the kingdom with good works. They were clear. Jesus, his kingdom, his rule, his salvation. Well, geez, you guys are little Jesuses. And we see the Holy Spirit blessing worship and fasting with sending. Well, that's what they were doing. Well, let's take our, our little lens here and focus down on one of the characters we read in the narrative here, Paul, in Romans 15. In Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, and it really goes all the way down through verse 33. Let's see what they're doing. Now, Paul... He's writing to this Roman church to prepare them for his coming, his eventual intentional coming to them. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, crossing cultures again. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never seen, or those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. We read in this passage among many, many, many really cool things. Grace was given, power, authority, kindness, salvation, all the good things in the grace of God is given by God for crossing cultures to the Gentiles. So Jesus is moving this sent servant cross cultures. We see that Jesus accomplished through Paul the bringing of the Gentiles to obedience. So people who were outside are coming inside. We see that Gentiles have been reached from Jerusalem to Illyricum. You know where Illyricum is? If you look for Illyricum on a modern map, you're not going to find it. But here's where it is. It's where modern-day Croatia, Montenegro, and Bosnia is at, in Macedonia, right? That's just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy, where Rome is at, where Paul's wanting to get. So from Jerusalem, which is down here, all the way over here, Paul says that he's fulfilled the gospel. Now what that means is not that every person has been saved, but what it does mean is that every possible group of people in Paul's scope and aim have had the planting of the gospel take place among them. That's astounding. And so Paul's aim is not to back up and do it over, but to keep going forward where there is no work. In other words, he's pushing 
outward. There is a movement. There's no longer any room for Paul there. That's an astounding statement which really deserves the whole sermon. Meaning, there are people who've never heard. You now have heard. It's time for me to move on. Now the rest of y'all get busy. Start evangelizing. Make more disciples. The church is established. Now it's time to move. And so we see here that Gentiles have been reached in a large swath of the world. And Paul's like, i got to get over to Spain. And Rome, I want to come to you so you can help me on my way. Love that kingdom boldness. Got to go. You're going to help me. And you're going to see when I get there. That's beautiful. And then we see there's an ambition here. And the ambition is focused on preaching the gospel where Christ hasn't been named. And what is Paul's reasoning for doing that? He quotes here Isaiah chapter 52 verse 15. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. So what's Paul's reason for this crazy ambition to go where no one has heard? Because it's written that's God's intent. Isn't that beautiful? So we see what the church did. Now the question is, why did the church do this? Well, I've introduced it already because Paul gave it to us. It's in the manual, right? That's our language for saying it's in the Bible. It's written. We don't have to make it up. It's there. And it's Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12. And if you're unfamiliar with that passage, I'd like for you to flip over there and look. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just hear and you can go look that up. You can Google that. And you just type it into the old Google search engine and you can find this passage. And what you'll find in this passage is it's known as the passage of the suffering servant. Isaiah looks forward to the day that the promised one in Genesis 3 who would come and rescue them from the curse of sin. Isaiah looks forward to the fulfillment of that day and he speaks about Jesus. And we read in Isaiah 52 verse 13... Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Why did they do what they did? Because in the manual it is written that those who don't know need to know. And those who can't see need to see. Therefore we move out. That's why they did what they did. Because it's in the manual that that is the very heartbeat of God. Jesus, the suffering servant, would make himself known and purchase many nations through his sacrifice for sin. Go read the rest of that passage. And he would make himself known to those peoples and those nations and give them understanding by the glorious gospel of the kingdom, reign, rule, and salvation of Jesus Christ. Well, that leads me to another question. Why would Isaiah say such a thing? Is Isaiah just making this up? As Isaiah think, geez, I'm feeling pretty good today. Had lots of coffee this morning, a little jittery. Think I'll ride a little bit. Ooh, this feels good. Or, or is there something fueling these words? Well, there is. It's because Isaiah has his heart and mind fully planted in the manual. What's Isaiah reading in the manual that's making him think 
that these people who haven't heard need to hear and who don't see need to see. Well, you've heard this if you've been around Three Rivers. This isn't fresh to you. It's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's Genesis 11, 1 to 4. And it's Genesis 12, 1 to 3. We just finished a 73-year study through the book of Genesis. So this is fresh, right? So what is Isaiah preaching from? Where is he getting this from? Well, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we have what is called the creation mandate. This is before sin, all right? So this is important. This is not like this is God's response to sin. This is before sin. You tracking with me? Pre-sin. It's important. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let's make man in our image. And let man in his perfect state have dominion over everything we've created. Be our vice regents. And rule over all created order. Fill it. Multiply it. Subdue it. Leave this garden. There was a sentness in their created intent. Their life was not to be spent in the garden. You understand that? The garden was home base. This becomes the framework for understanding local church later. Their beginning point was the garden. Full of resources. Full of life. To then take and then leave and go to the rest of created order. To fill it. Multiply and it. Subdue it. And bring the glorious reign of the triune God. In full display over the earth. That's pre-sin. Isn't that beautiful? But something tragic happens. Genesis 3 and the rebellion against God leads to much death and destruction. No good ever comes from sin. Only death and darkness and bondage and bad things. And we get to Genesis 11 verse 1 to 4. And we see this little passage here. And tucked right in the middle of it is this dark, nefarious, ugly thing that's easy to miss. The nations of the earth that have multiplied since the flood have come together on the plains of Shinar and they settle there. And they say to one another, verse 3, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly and make brick for stone and use bitumen for mortar, tar for mortar. And then they said, and here's this dark little statement. You ready? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that's top in the heavens. That doesn't mean like they thought they were building a tower up into heaven. Heavens is like Old Testament saying sky. In other words, let's build some tall buildings. And let's make a name for ourselves. Let's glorify us. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's the dark statement. Well, there's some, several dark statements. But the dark, dark statement I want to draw your attention to is this lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, I just showed you Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What did God have for them before sin? To send them throughout the earth. Now what are they doing in sin? Let's not go throughout the earth. Let's stay right here. You smell rebellion? You hear the hiss of the serpent? You don't have to do that. Stay here. It's a good plane. You got lots of stuff for building stuff. Stay right here. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And what's God's response? God's response is negative. So he confuses their languages and causes them to be scattered throughout the earth. What they refuse to do, he's going to make happen. But God doesn't leave them there. We get Genesis 12, 1 to 3. He's now scattered them throughout the earth, forcing them to do what he created them to do. And then he calls Abram, who will later be named Abraham. 
as the ambassador to go to those nations to preach the good news. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What families? All the families just scattered in chapter 11. He is now sending Abraham and his descendants as an ambassador. And the New Testament makes a big deal out of this. Who's Abraham's descendants? You and me. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Many daughters had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Right? You know the song. And if you don't know the song, I'm sorry. You missed Kool-Aid and butter flour cookies at VBS. But this faith of Abraham that has been brought to us in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who turn from sin and follow Jesus and come after Him in faith, those people become daughters and sons of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus comes to us and gives us Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20. Remember, Jesus isn't making this up. It's not like Jesus said, geez, guys, this worked out well. Let's franchise this. Let's take it global. I got up from the grave. This is pretty good. Let's see if we can make some bucks off of this. No, that's not what happened. Jesus, the eternal son of God who told creation in the beginning, you have a global mission and a global purpose. The eternal son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he lives among us. He shows us the glory of the triune God and he lives a perfect sinless life. He satisfies the perfect demands of God and he goes to the cross to take your sin and mine. He's buried on the third day. He rises, then he ascends 40 days later to sit at the right hand to the Father to general complete the task that He gave us in Genesis 1, 26-28 that all the families of the earth would hear the good news and repent and believe. Therefore, He said go make disciples of every nation. Why did the church do what they did? Because it is the mission and heartbeat of God that His people be mobilized out. This just is what it is. This just is what it is. Therefore, we say it like this at Three Rivers Church. For God's glory, disciple the nations. We exist for the fame of Jesus Christ in seeing that there are people from every tribe and nation and language represented before the throne of God on the last day. That's why we exist. And if that's why we exist, do we need to be about making hand sanitizer? No. No. Hand sanitizer is great. It's awesome. I buy it. You buy it. But that's not what we exist for. Illustratively. If somebody just tuned in the live stream, why is he talking about hand, hand sanitizer? They're totally confused. It's probably why I should stick on the notes. But you get the point. If the mission is the glory of God, the fame of Jesus Christ, by fulfilling the heartbeat and mission of God, of seeing that all the nations of the earth hear and have opportunity to turn to Jesus in faith, then that dictates a little bit about what we look like. And that means we don't have departments or ministries set aside for simply making sure we have more stuff to consume. So how are we going to make application to this? Well, we're going to spend about three years, hyperbole, Studying through the church and the marks and indicators of the church and what the mission of the church is. And so I can't do it all justice here, but this morning, in conclusion, I want to give you some applications to take away. First, I want us three years to believe 
Our belief is key here. Because what you believe you do. This lie that I can believe something and do something different is just that. It's a lie. What we believe we do. So I want us to really believe right down in here and here. I want us to believe that God is a disciple making God. Because that is his very nature in love. It's his very nature in love. God is a disciple-making God who intends that his fame, his glory be spread among the nations. And he intends to do that in love. We get this beautiful passage that many of you may know by heart. For God so loved the world. Love pushed the mission that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's very nature is mission-centric, born out of love. 1 John 4, 8 reminds us that God is love. And so the mission of God to the nations is born out of a nature of love. God created on purpose with a clear mission in mind and love. God sought out the redemption of sin, marred creatures and creation in love. God sent ambassadors to call us to faith in Jesus in love. God teaches us how to know and obey the ultimate good and ultimate best for us and our optimal optimal joy in love. Therefore, Three Rivers Church, make disciples because God so loved the world. That's the task. I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that mission number one is to make disciples of all nations so that those nations can know God in all of His glory. Do you know that God never promises to supply us off mission? All of the promises of prayer are mission-centric. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name isn't tacking on the phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of any prayer. I want a boat. Really bad. Yamaha, 24, 25-foot jet boat, dual engine. Love to have that because I feel like God would like me to have that. Just kidding. He probably doesn't want me to have that because I'm an idolater. But I really want a boat. So I can't say, Jesus, give me the Yamaha jet boat in Jesus' name. And because I put in Jesus' name at the end of it, it's guaranteed. That's not what in Jesus' name means. In Jesus' name means in the reputation, mission, fame of Christ. Meaning when you tack that phrase on at the end of a prayer, what you're saying is these words just represented the mission. Meaning prayer exists for the task. God never promises to supply off mission. So it challenge you to think, what are you praying for? Is it on mission? Because if it's not, there's no promise of it being given. So if mission number one is to disciple the nation so that they can know God in His glory, understand that He's not going to supply off mission. We also need to understand that so much of our supply with our worldview and our technology and our skill set is us going and getting it. It's not asking and waiting in faith. And that kind of getting and gaining is no indication of God's blessing. We can have a lot of good through human work, but we may never have what is ultimately eternal in nature. If we believe that mission number one is to make disciples of all nations, then it has implications for how we organize for work personally and corporately. We're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks unpacking this statement. 
So hang on to that. If we believe mission number one is discipling the nations for God's glory, then there are implications on how we organize for work personally and corporately. Almost done. Ask yourself this question personally. Do my personal disciplines lead me to make disciples beyond my immediate family? Families assumed due to proximity. Families given. They in the house. You're going to get gospeled. Right, boys? That's going to happen. But do the disciplines of my life lead me beyond my immediate family? How is my life shaped around introducing to people, even introducing people to Jesus and teaching them to obey Him by faith? What does my personal evangelism look like in my city? Have I isolated myself to a mere Christian community with no outlet for introducing people on the outside to getting on the inside? If so, it ceases to be uniquely Christian. There is nothing about the Christian faith that is isolationist in nature. It is an outward moving including body that swallows up death by life, darkness by light. Do our good works and words put us in the public square for healing and proclamation of the way, the truth, and the life? You notice in those passages earlier what the church did. They did nothing in secret. It was all done in the public square. Their public proclamation was also so clear that people started calling them little Jesuses. You didn't think there'd be implications for that later on, but guys, listen. Our work and words have to be so clear in the public square that Jesus' message is explicit. And check it out. They had favor with the people. The message didn't make people hate them. Persecution was going to come for a lot of reasons, because it, but it wasn't because they were just unloving people that weren't liked. They had favor in the public square, and Jesus was saving people there. Basically, the question is, are we on that mission, personally and corporately? The final thing I'm going to say in closing is worship. We get to the end of Acts 13, 1-3, and the outward mobilization took place as they worshiped the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, take these two cats right here, and send them. And you know what they did? They did it. And the rest of Acts is the narrative of that outward movement. Of an outward movement. Of an outward movement. You following here? You tracking with this? They did what they did because it's the heartbeat and mission of God. Go out, go out, go out, go out, go out. Does the church have a mission? You bet the church has a mission. Are we tuned into that as a church? Organizationally, you bet we are. And it is going to be one of the greatest tasks we will ever face in this season of life in our church to stay on it. Stay on it. By asking those questions. So, how are we going to be mobilized? We're going to pray. 
and I trust the Holy Spirit in our prayer, and we're going to worship in our prayer and our worship and even our fasting. It said as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, I call you, I ask you, do without a meal. You can leave off breakfast, lunch, dinner, or one of the three, all three, your call. Keep it between you and the Lord, but go to the Lord in fasting, prayer, and worship and say, Lord, keep us on task, and He will do it. He will. He will. He may do it by culling. That's a, that's, I think that's a redneck term. And kind of cutting off. He may do it by adding. He may do it by keeping us scattered. But he will do it. And worship the Lord. Because he may speak to you. Hey, go talk to that person. Go here, go there. You hear and obey. And you'll be a good disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help the songs, the words from our mouth, and the meditations of our heart to be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Fill us with your spirit. Let the fruit of lips that bless your name come off of us this morning as we sing to you and we worship. You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. So let us tune in just a little bit. Worship you well. And then would you do an amazing work of grace in and through us to get us on mission and keep us on mission moving forward for the glory of Jesus among the nations.